Um, this next story is one that um, is quite personal to a lot of people, I guess, in some ways. Um, as a former war correspondent, it was something that I also have thought about an awful lot over the last few years because, of course, the death of a child does seem unfathomable. Indeed, there's no word in the English language to describe a parent who's been bereaved this way. For them to be killed, though, in a brutal beheading, for that to be videoed and for that to be posted on the internet is unimaginable. You might remember this was how the journalist James Foley met his death, clad in an orange jumpsuit in the desert executed by a group of Islamic State terrorists who were nicknamed the Beatles. Would you then choose to come face to face with the killer? Well, that encounter between mother and murderer forms the opening of Colin McCann's latest book, American Mother. In it, he's collaborated with James's mum, Diane Foley, charting her story of trying and failing to bring her son home. Well, both Diane Foley and Colin McCann are with us now, Kia ora, good morning. Welcome to Saturday morning. morning good Susan. morning, Susie. Diane, if I could talk to you first. Um, firstly, I'm so sorry. I, I was so sorry, as so very many of us were, when we saw what happened to James. And I wanted to acknowledge not only the work he did, um, but I wanted to acknowledge with you the way he died and, and the way that that must have played out and how horrific that must have been. I'm so sorry. Thank you for that, Susie. Um, no, it was horrible. <laughs> yeah, and before we hear perhaps about the series of events that are recounted in the book, and before we talk about um, life after the death of Jim, could you tell me a little bit about him? Tell me a bit about your oldest son. What was he like? Um, how do you remember him? Sure. Jim was a lot of fun. He was very curious, loved to read, very interested in others, in um, life in general, and very, always curious about other people. He was a great listener. Therefore, I had lots of friends of all different stripes and, and colors and sizes, if you will. Um but as he grew older, he became more and more passionate about telling people's stories, hearing them and making sure they're shared with others. And Colm, if I can bring you in here, um, of course, you will remember the image of James Foley both being taken hostage and indeed that execution. Um, I guess as an outsider at that time, in the sense that you would have been like many people around the world seeing this without without knowing him, without having a connection with the family. Exactly. I mean, uh, but it was that moment uh, when the oxygen went from the air, when we all saw that image, which is probably the second most iconic image after the, the towers coming down for the, certainly for the first early part of the 21st century. And I remember being rooted to, to my seat with, 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 with horror, in fact. And then um, the extraordinary thing that happened to me was that very shortly after that, 
um, a number of friends sent me another alternative image of um, of Jim, and he was in a bunker in Afghanistan. And um, I wasn't really sure how to how to parse this for myself because he was reading a book of mine in the photograph. He, mm. he was shown reading a book of mine called "Let the Great World Spin," and so I was trying to juggle and and hold these two uh, images in in my own imagination, and it, and so I had a sudden and very immediate and very visceral reaction to to everything that happened and felt a kinship with him in many ways. Mm. You had that photograph pinned up on your office door for a while. I did. I pinned it up and and every time I left my office door, I sort of um, I I, I sort of gave gave him a nod and um, he became a big part of my life. And and, uh, but it wasn't until about um, uh, almost seven years later, after a series of um, um, chance uh, things between myself and Diane, we I tried to get in touch, and my email didn't go forward. That I got a chance to meet this most remarkable uh, of people, and she, uh, Diane Foley is is extraordinary, in and in the sense that she turned all of this grief into something incredibly positive, and 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 she gave me a chance to go down with her uh, seven years after the killing to meet uh, her son's killer who had been mm. captured in Syria and taken to the United States. And and that's where um, Diane's full force of personality became very apparent to me, um, an extraordinary person. And that is how the book opens. And um, I, was ab- I was absolutely gripped, um, absolutely gripped. I didn't know, Diane, that you had met Alexander Coty. Tell us a little bit about how that came about, how you were able to sit in a room opposite him. Well, Alexander was one of two former British jihadists who were extradited to Virginia. And um, they both um, had eight counts of human rights crimes, kidnapping, torture, and the murder of four American citizens, three British um, citizens, and so many others. And however, Alexander Cody pleaded guilty to all those um, crimes. And um, when he did that, he offered to meet with victims. So um, I felt fairly sure right away that Jim would have wanted me to meet Alexander and to hear him out. And also as a mother, I wanted to tell him who Jim was. I um, And Jim worked with young um, men like Alexander, who'd had kind of a rough upbringing without a father in their life and um, the guidance he needed. And so I think Jim would want me to hear him. So I felt rather sure I wanted to speak with him. What did your family think of this idea? They they didn't understand. They they thought it was rather foolish um, and they wanted nothing to do with it. So when Colum so generously um, offered to join me, I was um, I was so grateful because I knew I wanted to go, but I was very grateful to have a friendly friend with me. (laughs) I really was. Yeah. For you, Colm, I I sort of can't even imagine what it must have been like to sit in the room and to witness this 
conversation between two people from such different sides of one story? Well, I was in the presence of such generous compassion. It was um, it was an extraordinary uh, human moment for me. Just imagine it like this: we're you know we're down in Virginia. We walk into a courthouse. We walk into right into the heart of a courthouse, into this big windowless room. There's FBI there. There's um, prison guards there. There are prosecutors, defense, and then there's this man sitting at a table in prison uniform with shackles on his ankles, with a book open in front of him and a cup of coffee there in front of him. And Diane walked over and sat no more than four feet uh, from him. Uh, and I got to witness that. And all the world dissolved away in, the, in, in that particular moment. Everything came down to the fact that these two people uh, were, were, were talking to each other. And there was a lot to talk about. There was a, there, there was a lot to parse, uh, whether it be you know, the facts of what happened, whether it be compassion, whether it be anger, whether it be uh, talking about faith, all of these things. So over the course of eventually three days, uh, we sat and talked with him. And uh, what happened, I mean, I won't give, a, give all the book away, but uh, what happened was one of the most um, extraordinary human moments that I've ever witnessed. Um, and uh, and it was so, um, it was tough, yeah, but it was such an honor to be there as well because people are capable of such uh, such wonderful things, even in the face of such darkness. Diane, you mentioned it was part of a plea deal that he would meet the families or he would offer to meet the families. Um, right. Do you think it was... Was it as straightforward as that? Was it a way of getting perhaps a less less harsh sentence? Or do you think he actually wanted to make some kind of reparation? I think he um I I'm he might well have hoped it might um give him a lesser sentence, which it did not. Um However, I think um, Alexander was rather curious. I think he wanted to know. I, I think he was kind of interested in meeting some of the victims. And and therefore, I think there was an openness in Alexander to ponder um, what he had done. Hmm. How do you look back on those encounters? Well, I'm grateful for them, um, Susie, um, because I know Jim would have would have done it himself had he come home. But I'm, I'm grateful also because I think it's very important that we try to understand one another, even if we're on different sides of an issue and dislike each other, that we need to learn to listen to one another. Um, but it was incredibly sad because we had lost our beloved son, Jim, and he's lost his freedom his family and country, most likely for the rest of his life. A, a just punishment, mind you, for his horrific human rights crimes, but nevertheless a very sad hmm. result of the hatred of the British jihadists, you know? The book, of course, uh, gives, I guess, the arc of the whole story about some of Jim's career, about how he was previously captured in Libya about how he chose to go to Syria. Take us through how you heard that he'd been captured. 
Well, we did not hear from him on our Thanksgiving Day, which is a big holiday in the United States, end of November. And that was strange not to hear from him on that day because he always called on holidays and birthdays and such. But And sure enough, the next morning, we received a call from his colleague and photojournalist, Nicole Tung to say that Jim had, in fact, been kidnapped only a few miles from the Turkish border on his way out of northern Syria. So that's how we found out, was through his colleagues. And how did this play out for you? How frightened were you initially? Because, you know, he had been kidnapped previously in Libya, but, of course, had got out. This was... Very different. We were shocked that it could happen again. Um, obviously, as parents um, and as a mother, I had I was ignorant about the risks that freelance journalists take in war zones. That it is very, very risky um, work. Um, but the fact that it happened again, I, I, we were just in in deep shock and very concerned because this kidnapping was not witnessed in a way that um, they could identify the captors. Um, Previously, in his six-week captivity, Libya, uh, a fellow journalist was able to identify the captors as Gaddafi's um, troops. But in this case, many foreign fighters were pouring into northern Syria. So the fixer had no idea who had taken Jim and thus began nine long months of not knowing if Jim was alive or not. How did you live with that? One day at a time, uh, Susie, with a lot of prayer, and we just did all we could, although we failed miserably. I mean, I'm a nurse, my uh, husband, a doctor. We did not know Washington or politics or anything about international hostage-taking. So... We really um, didn't um, know how to get the attention we needed to bring Jim home. So we failed. What was your experience dealing with the U.S. authorities over the time of Jim's capture and the time that he was held? Um, Well... uh, we, I went to, I quit my job and went to, started going to Washington monthly and tried to speak to anyone who would speak with me at the FBI, the State Department. And once I got into the White House and met with um, uh, Secretary, uh, National Security Advisor Susan Rice. But other than that, uh, they, I was continually reassured that Jim was our country's highest priority um, and then sent back in circles to talk to the same people. And I never got any information um, from anybody. And it turns out the reason for that was because we had no U.S. hostage enterprise, no fusion cell, no one who was accountable for bringing innocent Americans home. Mm. I wish they'd just told me that, but instead they patiently listened and told me they were on it and that Jim was the highest priority. But... Um, In fact, they really didn't know what to do with me. And there were other European hostages that were being held by the same group. Some of those uh, countries paid for their hostages to be released. 
some of those hostages got out. You spoke with them. Oh yes. What did oh, you yes. hear? As... What did you hear about um, about Jim and indeed directly from Jim through some of those? Well, um, Jim was held with three other Americans and two British, French, Spanish, Italian, a Danish citizen, um, many European citizens, aid workers and journalists. Um, and we never spoke to Jim. I, I never did um, after our call in early November of 2012. But after the all the European hostages were in fact negotiated out by their governments or allowed to do that by families in the case of Daniel Rye. Daniel um, had memorized a letter from Jim um, giving our family his last words, if you will. When uh, Daniel came out in June of 2014, he brought those words to us from his memory from Jim. You're listening to Saturday Morning on RNZ National. I'm speaking with Diane Foley, the mother of James Foley, and also with Colm McCann. The two have collaborated on a new book called American Mother. You had an extraordinary conversation with the authorities where I guess it becomes clear that they are not going to pay his way out of captivity. And you're told that if you raise the money you might be prosecuted. Yes, that was a very um, upsetting time. That was a, a few months, well, it was about three months before Jim was actually killed. And I guess now that I look back on it, it was the first time I was very clearly told the truth um, in that our country was not planning to do anything to get Jim out. Um, we were told they would not, try to get him out. They were not going to negotiate. They were not going to send a rescue mission in. And that's when we were threatened with prosecution, should we dare to raise a ransom. I was shocked um, that our government would treat us that way. But as I say, Susie, in some ways, that individual was the most honest with us. Mm. And I, I kind of hope we'd I wish we'd um, understood that our government was not planning to intervene much earlier, to be honest. It seems extraordinary that it took that long for someone to tell you the truth. Well, that was that was what was so upsetting. Mm. But I have to blame myself for my own ignorance. I, I Had I been more savvy about hostage negotiations and our government stance on that, I, I would have been more aware of that myself. Yeah, it's pretty but stark. I, it's it's, yeah, it's pretty it stark. Awful. Yeah. As but a, we've improved, Susie, since we, well, Jim's... Yes. Yeah, and so. I would like to talk to you about that in, in just a moment, but certainly it is a pretty... Certainly. It's a very um, difficult prospect because... Uh, to some extent, I have faced this. I was a, a war correspondent in Iraq and Afghanistan myself in the early 2000s. And you know that if you're taken um, as a, a British and New Zealand passport holder, my government was not going to come for me. Um, but I suppose the, the difficulty around this is you see other people getting out. And the line that you're given by the US government is that if you pay the ransom, then you are more likely, you know, 
to see people in the future, more and more people will be taken because terrorists exactly. will see this as a way of raising money. Is that exactly. borne out? Well, the reality is there's no research that underlies that. Um, what the research really has shown is that if you don't negotiate with terrorists, in fact, your people will be killed. And that's exactly what happened. That's what the research shows. I mean, Americans and British citizens are taken all the time, targeted abroad. Um, and if we don't engage in some type of shrewd diplomacy, they are killed, unfortunately. And to me, that was not um, worthy of our governments, that our governments, I feel, should prioritize the return of innocent citizens mm -hmm. who are taken hostage abroad. Simply, particularly when they're targeted only for being our citizens, not because they've done any crime, but because they um, belong to our countries. To me, that was, um, I was appalled that that was um, the situation. I'm sorry, Diane, to have to ask you about how you found out about Jim's death. Well, I found out, um, actually, it was a, a journalist who called me. And out of the blue, on a beautiful August day, she called and she was sobbing. And I really couldn't quite understand her. And all she could say was, look at Twitter, and hung up. And so I looked at Twitter, and that's when I saw the horrific image of Jim with his head resting on his back. I mean, it was, and, and I had to look at the image just to make sure I, I knew it was Jim and it looked just like Jim, but I hoped that it was Photoshopped and that, um, and so I proceeded to anxiously email anyone I'd ever seen in the government, our FBI agents, anyone to confirm that Jim had been killed. And yet you'd had a couple of FBI agents turn up that morning. We had, and which was very anything. odd. Well, I don't know as they actually knew. I mean, it's a big bureaucracy, but it was very odd that that very morning we received two lovely agents from Boston in our home who wanted DNA, DNA samples of Jim. Here, after nearly two years in captivity, they showed up that morning, yes. And it took three days for President Obama to pick up the phone. It did. I think, to be honest, Jim's murder shocked everyone, including our president. I think we had grossly underestimated the hatred that these jihadists had for us. And Jim and the other uh, Americans, British, and many of the hostages epitomized all that we have done wrong in the world. And they hated us. And I think they truly underestimated that hatred and what they would do to our citizens. So I think he was in shock. That's why nobody got back to me that day. I mean, I don't think they knew what to say to me. They, they just truly did not. It was a very shocking um, development. And then when the president did call you, I suppose, tell us about some of the photographs you saw of him 
that were taken on the same day? Well, it's hard. I'm sure being president, it must be a terribly, terrible burden in so many ways. But he was he was having a great game of golf, um, enjoying himself, but he took time to call us. And so I'm grateful he finally did. I am grateful for that. I cannot... And he did tell us. Oh, go no, ahead, please, No, please go on. No, and he did tell us that um, he had, our country had, in fact, mounted a very risky military operation around July 4th, about a month before Jim was beheaded, um, which we never knew about. Um, But it was much too late. I mean, they had known where Jim was from the previous September of 2023. Um, And when the hostages came out, our government was given very precise information about where they were. But it seems like our government waited until all the other hostages were negotiated out safely. How do you, in the aftermath of that, begin to put some sort of life together and not be completely eaten up by it? Well, it was hard, Susie. I mean, I, uh, my media um, reaction was I was so angry at our, our government, angry at myself, angry that we had failed Jimmy so miserably. Um, and I had to pray not to be bitter. Um, knowing Jim, I, we and his his wonderful friends, we knew we had to do something to um, preserve Jim's goodness and moral courage. So within three weeks of his murder, we started the James W. Foley Legacy Foundation to advocate for prioritization of our innocent citizens who were taken hostage abroad, that they might come home, and to work together to deter um, the horror of international kidnapping, as well as promoting journalist safety and and in trying to inspire moral courage in others. So those were our goals when we set it up in um, September of 2014. Which comes through loud and clear in the book. Colin McCann, if I can bring you back at this point, and thank you for your patience uh, in listening to Diane as well. You became a sort of a story whisperer, I think you call it, for the writing of this book. How did that idea come about and then work as you became friends with Diane? Yeah, um, and and just to say, it's always such a pleasure to listen to Diane. I always get new facets of this. It's mm. almost like this story is so kaleidoscopic that 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 it always appears new to me. And 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 um, uh, you know, um, what happened was that uh, you know, once I um, got a chance to talk to Diane on the telephone, I said, well. I, I think I can help this lady to um, to tell her story, to shape the story. So I drove up from New York to New Hampshire, a few hours drive. And um, we sat together with her husband, John, for, for actually for a couple of days. And um, I began to listen to her. And I believe uh, 
you know, the scientists tell us the world is held together with molecules and atoms. And of course, they, it, it is. But I also believe that the world is held together with stories. Uh, and that's how we meet each other. And that's how we legislate the true human instinct that we have for all of these things that the, this book ends up being being about. Um, and when she said to me that that, that she was willing to, to and ready to go to meet um, Alexander Cody, I said, I, I am there. And then I, I, I had to look at a way to... Um, become the, 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 a sort of vessel, uh, a person who learns how to, how to listen. So I listened to, to Diane, tried to capture her voice and um, bring as much of these, these things that, that, that are important to her into the book, issues of faith and, and, and belonging and family and trying to capture um, Jim. And and you've been a correspondent, as you said, like, mm. and you know what sort of life Jim, Jim Foley was what was living, you know, um, you know, going to the front line, staying in hotels, um, journalists meeting together, swapping information, uh, you know, running out to the front line. But he was really, really, really interested. Um, in the people behind the more anonymous corners um, of the war, the young mm. girl who might be found in the marketplace or the older man who had a story to tell. Um, and so while he was, you know, uh, he was also embedded for a while with the 101st Airborne in Afghanistan, mm. uh, stories that you would know very well. Um, that sort of community is an incredibly committed group of of people. and And this is a story about, journalists and journalism and we also know that nowadays we're under such attack in various parts of the world uh, whether it be Mexico, Colombia, Gaza uh, and you know as journalists we have to um, stand up and we have to tell the story of the brave ones that's one of the things that was important to me with um, Diane's story and with Jim's story. Mm. When you were writing the book or or perhaps even after you'd pretty much got it together. At what point did you take it to publishers and what sort of response did you get? What kind of reaction did you get to the story? I'll be honest. I mean, sometimes publishers said, well, this is an old story, <laughs> as <laughs> if it was somehow like seeped in aspic or something that was put away um, in a corner. That made me, um, that, that made me upset and, and it made Diane upset too. And because um, people would say, oh, well, that story's been and gone, but that story's never been and gone because death will take away a lot of things, but it will not take away the power of a really good person's story. So we fought together uh like to make sure that we got the best form of of, of, of publishing publishing uh, all the way around the world thankfully we have bloomsbury um looking after the book in 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 new zealand and um and bringing this story to a wider range of people but um in the united states it was interesting it was it was a bit more difficult and even when the trial went ahead of um cody's um co um jihadist uh, El Shafi El Sheikh uh, we Diane and I went to the trial and we spent a couple of weeks down in DC and had to go through all sorts of um, in incredible uh, testimony from people all around the world um, we noticed that um, the American media was a bit more interested in another trial that was down the road also an important trial mind you but 
uh, it was it was Johnny Depp, mm. and, and the American media wanted to, to have the cameras at, at at the Johnny Depp trial when something really important was happening uh, just down the road because these jihadists were given finally the best of American justice. They weren't shipped off down to Guantanamo. They weren't being locked up in Abu Ghraib. They were being given a fifty million dollar trial. Um, in front of the world, in front of the world, and and that to me was was a great part of the story that we finally get to tell um, in this book because somehow I think uh, people dropped the ball on that, and I'm really happy that we get to do it uh, on these in these pages. Mm. Diane, I was very interested in an observation that comes up a couple of times um, in the book in connection with Alexander Corti that. He and Jim, you think, could have been friends? Yes, it's kind of odd, isn't it? But basically, yeah. as people, you know, we we can be alike. I mean, we are all capable of such good and evil. And Jim worked with a lot of young men who had had bad breaks, being perhaps grown up in poverty or with missing parents and um, various um, childhood trauma, and I really think would have, could have understood someone like Alexander, if you will, mm. because he'd worked with many young men like him. Also, a very powerful illustration of your empathy and perhaps the way you approached this whole situation of meeting Alexander Corti is that there's quite a bit in the book about you worrying about his children. Well, it was sad. I mean, here he shed, it was primarily the second day. We had two days in a row in October of 2022, I believe. One, thank you. (laughs) Because much better with the dates than I. Um, And that second day... I think was he was he and I were both most relaxed, and he started to share um, some of his sadness. And one of at one point he showed the picture of his beautiful three beautiful little girls, um, who at that time were living in a in a refugee camp in northern Syria, and he started to cry. I mean, it was very sad. Um, so and I and I think as an international community, um, the keeping of so many of those innocents, if you will, pr- probable innocents, moms and young children of jihadists in northern Syria, which continues today, mm-hmm. um, is has a potential for a disaster in many ways. Because how can those children um, grow up um, without a hatred for? Um, the world that hasn't reached out to help them or mm. welcome them back to their country. So very poignant, very poignant um, situation. Will you see him again? It depends on so many things, doesn't it? Right now, I believe he's held in a maximum security prison in um, Colorado, which is a long ways from New England in the United States. Um and I have no idea if he has any interest in ever seeing any of his victims again. Yeah. Um, perhaps he'll write. I mean, he wrote several letters after I met with him um, that I 
only received six months later. So I think only time will tell. But I was impressed that he was remorseful, that he apologized for a lot a lot of the pain I had gone through and our family had gone through. And I was grateful that God gave me the grace to see him as a human being, um, about the same age as one of our sons, Susie. Mm. Can, can I just can I just add here, Susie, that 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 um, you know, it was complicated for 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 me too. But mm. um, in ways, I, I I looked at him and and I kind of liked him, and I thought, uh, or, or or at least understood him. And when he uh, slid that photograph of his three daughters across the across the table towards Diane, it wasn't just done for theatrical effect. Mm. I mean, some people could say, yeah, he was pulling the wool over our eyes and how, how silly are you to, 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 to fall for this? You know, look at what a savage person and what what sort of terrible stuff he had done in his past. But there, there was something there about recognizing um, what Diane eventually said to him, to his face. It is all so sad. You have lost. We have lost. The world has lost. Um, and now we mm. have to sort of reconstruct ourselves um, in, in, in whatever way we can. But he was represented in the, the British media in particular as a, you know, a mm. soccer thug, a football hooligan. Um, and he turned out not to be. Mm. Uh, he was quite a thinking uh, person, and it was interesting to engage with him. And he was, he, the, in fact, the book that he was reading in front of us uh, when we walked in was a book by a friend of mine, Patrick Radden Keefe, a great uh, U.S. journalist, mm. about Irish politics called Say Nothing. And I knew that book quite well. And we started discussing Irish politics for a little portion of the, the time we had together. It was Quite, quite fascinating to mm. see, again, how kaleidoscopic this man happened to be. Mm. Well, look, thank you both very much for talking to us this morning on Saturday morning here on RNZ National. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I have to say the book is extraordinary. American Mother, it's called. Colin McCann and Diane Foley, thank you very much, both of you, for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Susie, so much.